This morning, we're going to be continuing on in our series in Luke. And we all know that the Bible is not always just flowers and dandelions. We know that Jesus has many hard sayings. Sayings we find here in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if there is a harder saying that I have struggled with more than the one we find ourselves in this morning. Find ourselves in Luke 6, continuing on, like I said, in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Luke 6, verses 27 through 36. That'll be the passage going through this sermon. Thousands have gathered around to hear this rabbi, this Jesus of Nazareth. I just want to dive in. Verse 27 This is what Jesus has to say. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. I'm going to pause right there before we go on any further. I think many of us can hear this, love your enemies. A radical thought that Jesus says, but I think initially If you're like me, I think of this, and I say it's admirable. It's a very noble concept, right? Like, I don't necessarily have anything against it initially. But when the rubber hits the road, and you actually have to do it, that's where I struggle. And think about it. For you in the room, what is an enemy? By definition, it is someone who has shown you opposition. And now, you don't have to have an arch nemesis in life to have an enemy, right? But think, these are the people in your life. You get around them, your chest begins to tighten. You feel awkward. Your your blood pressure gets a little bit higher around these people. Maybe it's something they said to you that still sticks with you and still hurts when you think about it for too long. Maybe they've done something to you, directly or indirectly, that still causes pain, and and there's been a fracture in the relationship that has not yet been restored, and you wouldn't even know how to if you tried. Now, many of you have probably thought of at least one person, if not multiple people, that might come to mind when you think of an enemy, when it fits under this category. And Jesus says, take that person or people, And he says, love them. Now, honestly, I look at that and I find that almost impossible. And to be quite honest, without the power of the Holy Spirit, it is. Without the work of Jesus, it is impossible. And so Jesus is telling us to do something that is, quite frankly, impossible. Love your enemies. Go on, though. He telescopes this open to say these are the different ways, three specific ways that you are to love them. So we're going to get practical. He goes on in verse 27. He says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Now, just a simple observation of the text, I I think Jesus is doing something very intentional, the way he listed those. I think what he's doing here is he's he's showing that the mistreatment increases. He's saying that for those who hate you, 
who have emotions, thoughts, just a natural disposition. They don't like you for whatever reason. He goes on to say, not only do they hate you, but those who curse you, meaning those who speak illy of you, who those who gossip or slander you behind your back. And he goes on to the third and final level, those who abuse you. Whether that was verbal, or maybe it's now turned physical, either way, there is the depths of mistreatment. And Jesus, I think, is increasingly showing us that as mistreatment increases, so too does our love. Notice, what does he say? He says, for those who hate you, do good to those. Don't match them, raise them. If they have a naturally bad disposition towards you, have a good disposition towards them. Be ready to serve them immediately and readily. He levels up to the next one, though. For those who curse you, bless them. While people speak illy of you, only speak well of them, both in private and in public. And for the last one, the highest form, he levels up once again to what love looks like at its highest form in this context. So for those who abuse you, just pray for them. Now, many of us can say things like that. You hear that all the time. Well, we'll all pray for you, right? But we, we don't, usually, and I'm, I've been guilty of that. You say, oh, well, I'll pray for you, and we, we forget. But there is something that Jesus is saying here. When you pray for someone, that is one of the highest acts of love you can do for them. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher and theologian, once said that there is not a kinder act a man could do for me than a man to pray for me. And so we don't throw that around lightly at CLB when we say we pray for people. We mean it. Because that is not the least we can do. Sometimes that is the most. And Jesus is saying that here as the mistreatment increases, so ought our love. He goes on in verse 29, says, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. I want to be very clear what Jesus is saying here and what he's not saying. When he says someone strikes you on the cheek, in this cultural context and time in, in history, that did mean a physical slap. For example, when Jesus is betrayed and he's standing before that sham trial in the middle of the night, the Pharisees and religious leaders are accusing him of all wrong and how he has broken the law. And what does Jesus say? He says, if I have broken the law, then show me. But if not, why have you struck me on the cheek? Why do you strike me? So they, they, they physically struck Jesus across the face, which by law, Jesus is showing, was actually illegal. It was such a deep offense and insult in that culture that it was actually illegal. Now, transfer that now to our context. What is that saying? Does that mean if someone comes up and just decks you, that you should just say, all right, how about this cheek now? <laughs> no, no. It, it, Jesus is not giving a, a reason for us to say we shouldn't believe in self-defense for, for military, for police. That's, that's not what he's saying, right? We have to fit Scripture in context, and that means cultural context. So in our cultural context, what Jesus is saying is while a slap on the face back then 
was the deepest form of insult. Jesus is saying, my followers will be known by their love. And the way they are known by their love is specifically how will we respond to insults? How do we respond to when people insult us? I think what Jesus is doing here is he's showing us our greatest weakness as humans. He's pushing on a weak point that's ready to pop. And I think the weakness he's pointing out here in all of us, me included, is our inability to not take things personally. And what I mean by that, there's really two ways that someone can offend us, right? Number one, they're not really our enemy, right? These are the comments that are made and maybe just the tone of how they're said. And while they're not actually inherently offensive or insulting, it's things like they just give us maybe what the world called feedback or criticism, right? Things that are actually good. Sometimes even the Proverbs would say faithful wounds that are meant to give us wisdom and sometimes are painful, right? Even God says discipline is not always painless. And so if you have someone who lovingly coming to you saying, hey, these are just maybe a blind spot. I really want to give you wisdom. I am coming as a faithful friend. Just want to tell you, right? Now, it may wound, but at the same time, that's not, again, the context of what Jesus is saying here. That's not an enemy. That's a friend. And so the first one I want to just clear the air. If you are the person, and I have struggled with this personally, so I'm speaking out of a place of experience, you can take things really personally. Every word of feedback, though it may be true and actually is godly wisdom and helpful, we can be the people that just take it so personally. You're like, oh, who are you? Don't tell me anything. And we immediately classify them as an enemy when they're actually a faithful friend. And so I want to clear the air. That's not what Jesus is saying. But the second one that Jesus is saying, these are the times and the people in your life who have truly done you wrong. They have actually sinned against you. They've spoken illy of you. They've slandered you. They've gossiped about you. They they have abused you with their words or actions. And that's what I want to focus on. Both of them are necessary because we need to understand the first one is where our ego is offended. Now, that's okay. As Christians, that thing got to be crucified anyway. We got to get rid of the ego, right? That's okay if that's offended. Bruise that up all you want. But when it's our honor... And that's what Jesus is saying. When our honor is stepped on and abused, that's how we are to respond in a different way. And so I want to get into that because I immediately thought when I look at this verse, when someone strikes you across, across the cheek, when you're deeply insulted, turn the other cheek. And I immediately thought to myself, ask the question, God, does this just mean that Christians have to be pushovers? <laughs> Do we just have to take abuse, slap after slap after slap, and we just can't do anything about it? And I would say, no, absolutely not. It can't mean that. And the reason I say that is because there are other scriptures that only confirm this scripture. Scripture will never contradict itself. It will only make it stronger in its argument. And so we get this. If we go back to the Old Covenant Scripture, many believers who have walked with Jesus for any measure of time are familiar with it. Micah 6, 8. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And so why I say it can't mean that the Christian is a pushover and just takes slap after slap, I get that from Micah 6.8 because I think it overlays Luke 6 so perfectly. I actually get that from Tim Keller. He did the same as I was studying and prepping. He goes in to say the number one, right, in the order of which this is listed, to do justice. Meaning that God is a just God. He cares about injustice, and as his church, we ought to as well. Meaning we don't stand for people bullying people around and mistreating people, marginalizing people. That, That is our heart to stand against that with godly justice. We're not to just sit by idly and let that happen as we sit on the corner. But number two, right? He follows that up immediately. What has God said is good? To love kindness. Meaning that God, while he cares about justice, the flip side of that same coin, he is a God of mercy. Mercy is compassion. It is looking at a person and feeling something for them. It is saying, I want their well-being. I understand there are so many things going on in their life, why they're in this predicament, and have compassion on them, rather than judgment. And so while God wants us to keep those perfectly intertwined, that we are a just people, fighting for just causes, Simultaneously, we are a merciful people, understanding why people are the way they are, understanding what, that we meet them where they're at. And so in this case, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's saying, mercy. Mercy is when you turn the other cheek and you choose not to strike back. Tim Keller says it, and when you are struck across the first cheek, You turn the second to give them a chance now to kiss that cheek rather than strike it. You see, because it's not loving as Christians to retaliate without mercy. But on the flip side, the justice piece, which we talked before, means that you don't roll over and just let them continue to strike you. It means that you choose to give them boundaries and say, no further. No longer will I take this kind of mistreatment or abuse. Because while it's not loving to retaliate without mercy, it's also not loving to enable injustice. And you take those two things in perfect harmony, justice and mercy. Practical example of how I've seen this done so gracefully. I was uh, actually in a room with some friends and we were hanging out and Uh, one of the girls had to take a phone call. He said, I'm getting a call from my dad. She went over to the corner of the room, and you could just kind of hear, you know, I didn't mean to overhear, it was just a a smaller room, and she says, Dad, listen, hey, hey, and he can hear the father is getting really worked up, and he's starting to raise his voice, and she says, hey, 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 Dad, Dad, I love you. I have asked you multiple times throughout the years not to talk to me like that. And if you're not going to honor that, I'm going to hang up. I love you. I love you. And please call back when you're ready to talk to me in a calm manner. I love you. Click. 
I think that was a perfect blend. I think that was so godly and spirit-filled of the Lord. That woman was able to say, hey, I have, I have given mercy. I have loved kindness. But I have also loved justice. I did justice. Right? Jesus goes on to say this. And, and before I even go on in the verse, I, I do want to give a practical example of a personal example recently. Um, I didn't plan on sharing this, but I think it, it's fitting so that you can see that I am also a human I am no better than anyone in this room because I am behind this pulpit. Recently, the Holy Spirit has been convicting me that I have been passive because that's ultimately what happens when you don't do justice. There is passivity behind that. And uh, there's been uh, just a mutual friend in Jayla and I's life who has really been mistreating Jayla. And I've always kind of didn't know how to navigate that as her husband and say, well, it's It's more your friend than mine, but I'm also, you're my bride, and I want to make sure that I I do justice, and I I have a calling to protect you. And it would always just make me angry when I'd hear how this friend would would treat her, the way, you know, the friend spoke to her. And so finally, I felt the Holy Spirit was just saying, it's time to do justice and love mercy. And so I ended up actually contacting this person, and I just kind of laid some ground rules saying, hey, I'm just not okay w- with the way you're talking to my bride. I-, I think we need to set some boundaries. And we ended up setting up some things in place so that communication was more streamlined and I could be a little bit more involved. Not because I'm trying to control, but just because I wanted to make sure there was accountability and make sure I could do my job as a husband to be a protector. And in that example, I tell you, that was not easy. Like, I'm not puffing out my chest and saying, look at me, I I was a godly man. No, I I was a wimp for for years. I hate conflict. I I hate, uh, you know, I am such a man who fears people, right? Like, no matter what you think, I'm I'm up here on this. I I fear people. I I don't like when people don't like me. And I struggled with that. And, And God said, do you like that more than your bride being mistreated? Do you like that more, the injustice, than the injustice you're witnessing? I said, no. And so, doing justice, loving mercy, more than loving my own comfort, understanding that sometimes for a relationship to be reconciled and restored, it's like if you've ever gone skiing, to get to the snowy slopes, oddly enough, you have to go down in the dark tunnels to drive up there. And it's just like relationships. Sometimes in order to get to the snowy slopes, you have to go through the dark tunnel. But know what's on the other side of that tunnel. And Jesus goes on. I'll go on here in the text. Verse 30 says, Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. The golden rule, right? Even culturally, people believe that. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But again, Jesus reemphasizes this. Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Mm. 
Jesus says that the greatest benefit is when you give and expect nothing. Meaning your reward in heaven is greater than the reward that person could ever give you. And I think this, again, Jesus is poking on our weak points to to just lovingly show us how he wants to make us holier. That idea of expecting nothing in return. I thought about that, and I I thought to myself, you know, one of the greatest lies that humanity has believed, and we, we eat and consume and absorb every single day, is the lie that I deserve better. I deserve better. My circumstances at my job, my marriage, my family, my parenting, I I just deserve better. And and that's the lie that has consumed our thought life, that everything we look through is through the lens of, what am I going to get out of this? And and this lie, again, as simple as it sounds, this lie has has started wars. It's divided families. It's broken friendships. It's even shattered marriages. People have left. People have done wrong to one another because, again, they thought, I'm going to get what's mine, and you're not going to get in my way. See, it's to walk around with a constant chip on our shoulder that makes sure that all debts are paid. If you owe me relationally, I'm keeping tabs. I'm keeping receipts. I remember what I lent you, whether that was my time, my energy, my friendship. And I expect you to be there for me when I need it. In an ungodly way, in a selfish way, that says, I demand of you, pay your debt back. It's what keeps us in marriages, keeping receipts on one another. Right? It's throwing the kitchen sink at one another in the times of conflict and saying, here are all the things, don't forget all the things you've ever done to me. Even though God has forgiven and forgotten about them, but we choose not to. And again, this this happens in two main ways. We retaliate in two main ways. And I'm sure you can relate to either. Number one, it's the immediate retaliation. I would say this is the anger without mercy. This is where you've gotten into conflict with a spouse, a friend, or whoever, and you nag incessantly until they get the hint, if they haven't already, that you're upset. You didn't like that the dishes weren't done when they got home. You didn't like that it felt like I did way more work while you were home with the kids, and this place is still a mess. I I didn't like that you went and bought that without asking me first. I didn't like that you did this project or what it fill in the blank, right? You made a decision without me. You didn't ask me first, and we will nag and nag and nag until they get the hint. They feel finally really sorry. Sometimes we do the flip. We give them the silent treatment until they have to practically beg us for forgiveness. There's something in our pride and ego that says that's satisfying. But in the end, anyone who's married, you know that wasn't the right choice. You know you just dug yourself in a deeper hole, and now you're going to have to apologize for all those hurtful things you said and done on top of it. Now, that's number one. Number two, this one's a little more sneaky. This is the person who can take a lot of strikes across the face. They don't seem outwardly like it's affected them. This is the person who their boss is just a jerk to them. 
just constantly putting workload on him, making them have to do things that he's not asking of others, and just unfair treatment. And you've just done that for years and years and years, and you just have never said anything because you, you just want to keep the peace. Just put my head down. I'll just deal with it, whatever. Throw it under the rug. But there will be a time. It is a ticking time bomb. There will be a straw that breaks the camel's back. There will be a strike across the cheek that was finally one too many. And what happens there is even uglier than the first. It's a delayed retaliation, which means there's even more open tabs, which means there's been even more hurt and suppressed anger and frustration that when it finally blows up, it's exponentially more than someone who would retaliate immediately. And this is, this is not funny when I say this, but this is what happens when there are mass shootings. And, and what happens when, when the police and reporters investigate and they ask the neighbors and their family and their coworkers, say, well, he was a really nice guy. No, he was just taking slaps across the face for years and finally blew the top off. Now, obviously, that's an extreme example. But in real life examples, like I said, many times this happens in marriages. Again, anyone, in, you know, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm sure everything I've said thus far you can relate to at one point in time or another. You know, I, I, to give a practical example, when Jayla and I get in conflict, and I know my ego stirring, or maybe I genuinely felt mistreated and my honor felt bruised, we start to get into it, you know, the pacing up starts to pick up, voices get a little bit louder, you know, and, and in those moments, the Holy Spirit is so kind. And I have to discipline myself in those moments. Say, God, please don't let me stop praying right now. Please don't let me just completely shut you off and go in the flesh. Because once I'm in flesh mode, it gets ugly. And that's when doors are slammed. That's when, you know, I, I storm out, whatever, right? And that, that was in the first year of marriage. We had to deal with some of that. And God's grown me. And what happens now, the Holy Spirit, it's just a simple thing I do. I look Jayla in the eyes in the midst of conflict. I take a breath and I say, hey, love, you're not my enemy and I'm not yours. We're a team, we're one, and I'm not against myself. And we begin to apologize right then and that we just discipline ourselves. Before it picks up speed, we jump off the train. We say, I'm not your enemy and you're not mine. I love you, I love you. Discipline yourself, say, I love you. Even if you don't feel in that moment, I love you. I'm not your enemy. Again, discipline yourself as married couples. If God has forgiven and forgotten it, let it be forgiven and forgotten. Don't pull out those older seats and thumb through them and say, here's this one, this one, and this one. All the things you've ever said or done to me. Discipline yourself. Let it stay in the ocean of grace. The ability where Jesus is saying here, when you are struck across the face, it is overlooking the offense. Overlooking an offense. Say, I just, here, here's where I see the conflict. I just overlook it. I'm just, I'm going to keep going. I'm, I'm not going to let that keep me in my flesh. I want to move on because there are more than just marital relationships where this is prominent happens right here in the church. Who are we fooling? <laughs> we got a bunch of ex-sinners in the place with indwelling sin, 
We don't think there's going to be some conflict once in a while. And what happens? Can I just be brutally honest? Can, can, I just, can we have a living room moment as a family? Like, I don't want to just give obscure examples of where we're at as a church. Like, this is a living room. We can, we can speak freely with each other. There have been fears and anxieties that come up. Where's CLB going? What's with this AM encounter? What are we talking about speaking in tongues? What are we doing with worship? What are we doing with City Light Kids? What are we doing with students? What are we doing with XYZ? Fill in the blanks. And, and all of us have different opinions. Just You're entitled to your opinions. But, but to come together, what happens is we begin to actually turn on each other. And that fear and anxiety that started out as mere fear and anxiety begins to turn to assumptions. And it begins to believe the worst in each other rather than choose to believe the best. Are, you, are we tracking with each other? I'm guilty of it, by the way. I'm not, I'm, I'll put my name at the top of that list. But what we're doing is as we keep receipts on one another, as we begin to gossip, slander, grumble about one another, most likely in private, it creates division. And what happens is something that is not true. We begin to avoid those people on Sundays. We begin to avoid those people at, at City Group. We begin to just say, no, I, I, just, I don't know how to deal with them, so I'm just going to kind of, sorry, it's awkward, but I'd rather just be awkward than try to deal with going through the tunnel right now. I want to be very clear. If you are a Christian, born-again believer, saved by grace, you have no enemies in this house. Amen. You have no enemies in this house. You may have enemies outside of this house, but this house, you have none. And we don't need to turn on each other. We don't need to shoot our wounded. We can come to each other. We can ask questions. We can have conversations. We can pray for one another. We can do good to one another. But my goodness, church, let us never be a people that begins to strike each other. So that's a pastoral moment, even though I'm not technically a pastor here anymore. I just have felt a shepherd's heart for that. And I think the solution here, do justice, love mercy. What is that last one? Walk humbly our God. The solution to showing mercy and doing justice for one another in a loving way, it will start with humility. Because that's, that's really what the good news does to a person, doesn't it? We have a gospel of grace, meaning that is undeserved favor. Yeah. And when you are giving something undeserved, there is no room for boasting. There is no room for ego. There is no room for pride. There is no room for conflict. It is simply to be received gratefully, humbly, lovingly. See, the moment when we were born again, if you are born again in this room, it was the mercy of God that made us realize for the first time just how needy we are just how selfish we are, just how prideful we truly are. And it was hard to swallow. We didn't like it, but for the first time, God's mercy made us accept it.
we saw how merciful God truly was. And I, I want to show this and illustrate this through a story of what the power of God's mercy can do. When you love your enemies with mercy rather than vengeance. Illustration, back in the 80s and 90s, there was a man by the name of Gary Ridgway. Maybe some of you are familiar with. He was the infamous serial killer known as the Green River Killer. And throughout the 80s and 90s, there was a slew of where he murdered 48 women. He was taken to court, and he pleaded guilty to all 48 accounts. During that time, they brought in the family members of all those 48 young women, and they were able to say some words to Mr. Ridgway. Now, all of them pretty much went up there, spat in his face, mocked him, damned him to hell, saying, I hope you have a rotting existence for the rest of your life. You belong in hell. Completely stone-faced, cold, detached, almost emotionless, scarily emotionless. Until the last family member goes up of one of the daughters. He's the father, and his daughter was murdered by this man. He approaches the mic, hands in his pockets, says, Mr. Ridgway, there are many people in this room who hate you. I'm not one of them. He said, you have made it very difficult for me to do what I believe God says, which is to forgive. And so, sir, I forgive you, and you are forgiven. And in that moment, Gary Ridgway takes his glass off and begins to weep like a child. To 47 insults and people acting in vengeance, it only made him more detached. It was the moment someone showed him mercy and forgiveness that made him weep and realize what he had done. It is that mercy where if we would flip the script for us, God could show us a record of wrong that we've done, how we have abused his goodness, how we have ignored his presence, how we have hated his sovereign rule over our lives. And we would have to plead guilty to every single one of those thousands of accounts. And God would have every right, just as that father did, or those other family members, to approach the mic and have some comments towards us for the judgment that's hanging in the air. And unlike maybe those other family members, and, and because God is perfectly just and good and merciful, God would have every right to say, you are damned to hell. That is the wages of your sin. It is death. And that is what I'm pronouncing gavel slams, take them away. That's not what happened. What happened instead is we had an advocate come on our behalf. And Jesus steps towards the mic. He says, I'll take the punishment. I'll take the judgment. I'll take the shame. They can have my record instead. 
And the judge looks, all debt's canceled. Finished. And we are free. Instead of God pouring out wrath and vengeance, though he was rightfully able to do so, God exercised both justice and mercy. It is the mercy of God when a Christian realizes that that forgiveness, that mercy was completely undeserved. That truly makes us humble. Let me flip that. Humble people are people who know the mercy of God. They understand that everything in their life has been given freely and undeservingly both tangibly and intangible blessings. Humble people understand that they are no better than anyone else. They understand that everyone around them, including their enemies, are going through spiritual battles that need to be taken account for. They understand that everyone deserves to be treated honorably as an image bearer of God, and that every single one of us is searching for a place to belong and that every single human being is desperate for mercy. Because the Christian, before they were a Christian, understood that they were once an enemy of God. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his sons, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, before we get too involved with our enemies, we need to understand, first, we were an enemy of God. And God, God was merciful when we struck his face. God was merciful when we hung his son on a cross and mocked him and put our sin on upon him. God turned the other cheek, gave mercy, gave us the opportunity to kiss that cheek on the other side of the cross. See, there's an opportunity for reconciliation now. There's an opportunity for a loving relationship now. No longer an enemy, but a friend. You see, mercy is not an end in of itself. Mercy is a means to an end, and why I say that, because Romans 5.10 says that. It says we were reconciled to God. You see, God didn't just forgive our sins, though hallelujah, he did, for the sake of just forgiving sins. God forgave sins so that we could be reconciled to God and give us the ministry of reconciliation. And God shows us mercy because he wants a relationship with us. Mercies that didn't just happen at the cross, but mercies that are new every morning. Meaning God's compassion for us is new every moment of our lives. Compassion that flows like a river. Every moment of our lives, God feels for us. He loves us. He wants the best for us. He cares for us. And so when we now let that mercy overflow in our hearts, we let it overflow into the lives of our enemies when we are insulted, when we're in conflict. We choose not to retaliate and strike back, but we choose to give mercy. 
Because when we show mercy, we show that we care more about the person than their opposition. I'll finish here. Last couple verses, and we'll close. Jesus says, again, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Hallelujah. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Yes, he is. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. What Jesus is saying here, he's saying, as sons and daughters of the Most High, follow in the Father's footsteps. Keep the family business of mercy up and running. And so, to close, we're going to sing some songs of worship, singing about the mercy of God. And after that, we're going to have a prayer team up here. And I would plead with you, if you are not yet a Christian, if you have not yet received God's mercy for the forgiveness of sins and an opportunity to have relationship with him, that you would not leave this place until you have received that mercy. That you would not leave this place until you know that you know that you know that you are no longer an enemy of God, but a friend. And for the Christian, I plead for you, if you have received God's mercy, that you would continue to receive God's mercy afresh today. And that mercy would empower you to give that mercy to your enemies. If you're struggling with any unforgiveness, any bitterness, that you would receive prayer. And your prayer would be simple. God, have mercy on me so that I can have mercy on others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a glorious thought to think that you are a father of mercies. That's what the, your word says, Father of mercies. <laughs> you are merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You could even love us who were once enemies of yours, enemies of the cross. And it was not your vengeance that broke into our story that changed our hearts, it was your mercy. It was your mercy that made us realize just how good and beautiful you truly are. It was your mercy that gave us a godly sorrow because we had finally understood just how rotten we had been to you and how many times we had abused your mercy. And so Jesus, we thank you that the cross is both justice and mercy perfectly. Don't let us waste the opportunity to receive mercies every moment so that we could give mercy to others and honestly just get more of you to enjoy your presence through your mercy and to make our hearts shout with praise because our God is a merciful God. We pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.